exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Back in 1973, during the Feast of Yom Kippur, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack against Israel. And that conflict became known as the Yom Kippur War. And as many of you know, last year on October 7th, which was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas attacked Israel, killing over 1,200 people, with almost 700 of those being civilians. Like to put that number in perspective, that is the third worst terrorist attack in recorded history with 9-11 being the worst. And so for the last four months, the nation of Israel has once again been at war. And now since the nation of Israel has begun their own counteroffensive on Hamas, over 29,000 Palestinians have been killed, including at least 12,000 children and 8,000 women. And, and so... As Christians, what do we make of what's happening? Like, I know personally many Christians who are outraged at Israel's actions, but I also know many other Christians who say that, that it is our moral obligation to side with Israel no matter what happens because, of course, they're God's chosen people. So which side is right? Is there even a right side? And... and how should we feel about these world events happening right now? Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 122. If you're using a pew Bible, Psalm 122 is on page uh, 612. And as you're turning, I'll just tell you that those questions led me to this passage specifically as I was praying about which Psalms to, to preach through, because it's in Psalm 122 that we're urged to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And this morning, I want to meditate on this question. How should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem as Christians living in 2024? Because a lot has changed since David first wrote this chapter. But even though a lot has changed since David wrote Psalm 122, Paul still commanded both the Christians in Ephesus and the Christians in Colossae to sing the Psalms one unto another. And that means that there is something for us as Christians living today to sing. And my prayer is that we would be able to sing Psalm 122 with all of our hearts the way the Lord would mean for us as a church to sing it. Because in Psalm 122, we're going to find three invitations. In Psalm 122, we're going to find three invitations. First, in verses 1 to 2, to enjoy the Lord's presence. God's people are invited to enjoy the Lord's presence. Second, in verses three through five, to be united under David's rule. God's people are, united to be, are invited to be united under David's rule. And third, in verses six through nine, to hope and lasting peace. God's people are invited to hope and lasting peace. This is a joyous psalm. It's, it's a glorious psalm. And, and my real prayer is, as I've just been thinking about this and meditating on and praying for the people who are in the pews right now, is that as we think about these meditations and as we take it in the context of all of Scripture and where we are, that, that we would know how to respond to what's going on internationally and know even how to have peace in the face of, of these wars. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. O oh God of Israel, you are the one that revealed yourself 
to Abram when he was nothing. You spoke to him and called him and made a nation out of him. Lord, you are the one who revealed yourself to Moses at the burning bush. You were the one that saved Daniel from the lion's den. You're the one who has been so faithful to your covenant again and again and again. And Lord, we just beg you right now that you would reveal yourself one more time through your word. As we seek to understand this passage, guide us, open our hearts, give light to our eyes so that we may best understand how to glorify you in a moment such as this. And Lord, as I preach, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered only by the power of the Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at me to verses 1 through 2. A song of a sense of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. In the book of Psalms, there are 15 psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent, where all the men in Israel were required to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for different festivals and feasts. And because Jerusalem is a city that was built intentionally on a mountain, as you were traveling up the mountain to Jerusalem, you would be ascending the mountain. And so it was in that moment of ascent that you would sing these Psalms of Ascent. They were pilgrimage psalms, traveling psalms, like a hundred bottles of beer on the wall, but if you're Baptist, a hundred bottles of root beer, whatever you like, but those little things to pass the time. And to also help orient your mind so you could focus on what you're heading to. And looking at these first two verses, it's easy for us to imagine what the Israelites would have been thinking about as they sang this psalm. Most often, this psalm was to be sung once you pass through the gates of Jerusalem as you were traveling to the temple, because the temple was also built on the highest point of the high mountain in Jerusalem. So it's you get through the gates, and then you begin your final ascent, and you start singing Psalm 122. So I want everyone right now, I, I, I sometimes have trouble like imagining these things, so I want you to imagine with me. Everyone close your eyes, please. If, if you would close your eyes and imagine that you are an ancient Israelite, Imagine that you've been traveling for days either on a donkey or more likely on foot. You're probably hauling some animals or some crops that you're going to bring to the temple, but you are tired, you are sweaty, you're probably hungry and thirsty, but it's all worth it because you're heading to a feast. So you start thinking about the music that you'll hear and the, and the food that you'll eat and, and the things that you'll drink. So, so still with your eyes closed, just as your mouth has started to water, as you're thinking about all these things, imagine you look up and you see the great city, the city of David. And then finally, after days of traveling, you pass through the gates for the first time and you start to make that final walk up to the temple, the final ascent to the house of the Lord. And suddenly everyone you're traveling with in your party, they all start singing verses one and two. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Thank you for indulging me. But, but you can see that it would not be hard to imagine why, why this song specifically would be a, a reason for much rejoicing. And these verses seem simple enough. But I'll tell you, as I kept reading these these, these verses specifically, verse 1 specifically, I kept reading it over and over again. And I had this nagging question in the back of my mind that I just could not shake. And the question was this, who is talking in verse 1? 
Like who's inviting us to go to the house of the Lord? Is it God? Is it David? Why do we need to be invited? Aren't we already required to go to the house? Why do we need to be invited? If you're an average Israelite, what's happening here? And then as I just kept meditating on it and chewing on it and, and thinking about it, I realized this was an invitation to be a part of specifically what was known as a peace offering. When you go to the temple, most of the time you're going because you've sinned or you've done something wrong and you needed your sin atoned for. So you go, you take your goat and you offer a sin offering and you don't get any of that meat back. It's gone. You sin, that's on you. Or you bring a, a bull for a guilt offering and you lose all of that bull because you need someone to die in your place to atone for you. These were costly sacrifices because meat was rare in those days. Most people just lived on their own portion of daily bread. So to give up an animal like this would have meant a lot more to them than it would to us. But there was another kind of offering that was not meant to atone for your sins. After you had atoned for your sins, it was then that you were welcome to offer a peace offering. And in the peace offering, you would give some of the animal to God, but you also get a good chunk of it back. And, and then you would cook it and you would eat it right there in the temple courtyard because the peace offering was this picture of eating a meal in the presence of God, of being at peace with your creator and sharing a meal. Once again, this is not for atonement. It's not for forgiveness. This is the goal of the other offerings. Like once I have my sins forgiven, this is, this is really what I've come here to do, to feast with the Lord and to celebrate with him. And it was a glorious thing, especially because for most people living in Israel, the only time that you get to eat meat at all would be at the temple. There is, of course, one problem with the peace offering, and it is by design. You only have two days to eat it. And then on the third day, everything left over is to be burnt up on the altar. Why? Because the peace offering was designed to be shared with a group of people. In the peace offering, you got back way more meat than one person could eat in a two-day time frame. So there was a huge incentive for you to invite your friends, your neighbors, your family, and even strangers to join you for a peace offering. So especially back then when meat was a delicacy, in verses 1 through 2, this is a picture of an invitation to eat meat for free. And even more than that, to enjoy a feast while also communing with the living God and your fellow man. This is like someone saying, I'm going to pay the bill. You come with me. We're going to the house of the Lord and we are eating prime rib. In the Old Testament, this was essentially their form of communion. This is the way that man was invited to freely enjoy a meal with his maker and fellow man. You know why we actually don't practice any of the atonement sacrifices of the Old Testament, it's because Jesus was our perfect sin offering. He was our perfect guilt offering, the perfect spotless lamb of God who was slain for our sins. But, but listen, people do not understand Christianity is if, if all that you get out of it is forgiveness of your sins because the real prize in Christianity, the real goal, the real end game is God himself and to be at peace with your creator. And, and that's why we're after Jesus is the lamb of God who was slain for our sin. God now invites and commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin and to put their faith in alone in Jesus. And for all who do that, they can experience peace with God. 
Though we deserve God's wrath and anger because formerly we were his enemies, we can now come to church and enjoy the bread and wine of communion and enjoy a meal, not so that our sins can be forgiven, but because our sins have already been forgiven. Because it's in the simple ceremony of, of, of communion that, that Jesus is here in a way that is special. Not that his body is physically here, not the wafers transform or anything like that, but the spirit of Christ is here when we partake of the simple earthly meal. In the ancient world of Israel, that, that, that's what they were going to. That's what they got to experience. And now just let me say that this is also our motivation to go out and invite our friends and our neighbors and our family and even strangers to come to know Jesus because it's in the presence of God where the spirit dwells that lasting gladness and joy is found. That, 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 listen, church, when we gather as a people, like there's nothing special about me as a speaker. There's nothing special about this building or specifically the notes that we play or sing on the piano. Like none of that is special. What is special is that the spirit of the living God dwells in you. And when his people gather, God is here. And that's the glory as to why we worship week in and week out to enjoy the Lord's presence. And that's the first invitation we find. But we're also invited to be unified under David's rule. Look to verse three. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. Quick side notes that that, that that phrase bound firmly together is the same phrase in Hebrew used to describe the building of the tent of meeting. So in Exodus, God told Moses that the whole tent should be bound firmly together as a single whole. But here in verse 3, David sees the city of Jerusalem as being bound firmly together in the exact same way. Like in David's mind, when he thought about Jerusalem, he saw the entire city as a kind of temple. Look with me to verse 4. Just keep that in mind. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. In some ways, Israel was similar to the United States where each tribe functioned like an independent state. But when they all came together to worship the Lord at the temple, all of the tribes would gather together as a signal of national unity, united under a single earthly ruler. Which ruler? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Verse 5. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Once again, when I was reading this this past week, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit because, like, remember who's writing this? David? <laughs> David's writing this. Like, have you ever met someone who talks about themselves in the third person? Like, can you imagine if I got up here and I said, this is the pulpit of Taylor. Taylor likes his pulpit. Don't touch it. I mean, that's weird. So, so I'm, I'm reading this and I'm like, David, why are you talking about yourself in the third person? That's weird. Is he being prideful here? Like, what's going on? Well, it goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. When David wanted to build God a temple, when David wanted to build God a house, and the Lord basically tells David, actually, I'm going to build you a house. The Lord told David, you cannot build me a temple because you killed too many men. You, you've shed so much blood. It's not appropriate for you to build a house. I need, I need a, a king who is a king of peace who can build me a house. So listen, David, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to build your household. And, and this son is going to be the one who's going to grant Israel peace from all of their enemies. 
And God promised to establish David's household through one of his offspring, through a son of David, a son who would rule in his place even after he died. And God said that he was going to establish the kingdom of the son of David and that this son of David was going to build a house for the name of the Lord. So here in verse 5, David is not being arrogant at all. No, in verse 5, he's believing in the promises of God so sincerely We don't even know if he's had Solomon yet. We don't even know which kid is going to take over. And he says, my throne will be established because my God has promised it. It was through the son of David that all the tribes would be invited to be unified as one under his rule and gathered together in this temple city of Jerusalem. Like sounds pretty good so far, right? Well, God's people are also invited to hope and lasting peace. Look with me to verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Jerusalem, as many of you know, is literally the city of Shalom. Like the word Salem, that is the ending of Jerusalem. It means peace. So here David tells us to pray that the city of peace would actually experience peace. And if you know anything about the city of Jerusalem, you know that that is a prayer that is desperately needed. And then David actually gives us a little prayer. This is kind of what you should pray. And he gives us an example starting at the end of verse 6. And then in verse 7, you know, I'll say this. In verse 7, it makes sense that he prays for the walls and the towers because those are the two points of vulnerability. If a foreign nation was invading and attacking, that's what you want to take down first. But what's interesting about this prayer is at the end of verse 6, the prayer begins by praying not just for the security of those within the city, but for the security of all of those who love Jerusalem, all those who bless Jerusalem. If you know the story, when David finally passes away, the Lord did give Jerusalem peace on all sides, that they were at peace with the Philistines and the warring nations. And David's son Solomon takes over the throne. And Israel experienced so much peace and prosperity in that day that silver was considered as stones. And, and so as Solomon is taking the throne, everyone has their eye on Solomon. They're like, this is the guy. This is the son of David. This is the guy who's going to establish his throne forever. Until Solomon starts to get a little older and a little older and he starts to slip away and has hundreds, literally hundreds of foreign wives and he starts to adopt their pagan practices. And by the end of his life, there was pagan worship all throughout the city of Jerusalem, supposedly God's city. So not only did Solomon get older and not only did he stray from his faith, but he died. The son of David that God promised to David was not supposed to die. He was supposed to reign on his throne forever. And then immediately after Solomon dies, the the nation is no longer unified as the 12 tribes gather into one. But as soon as Solomon dies, the nation splits in two. Ten tribes going to the north and two to the south. And, and the northern king, he knows the power of Jerusalem. He knows how the city can unify the people. So he's like, I'm going to make two altars for two golden calves so the people don't have to go south to go to Jerusalem because I don't want these kingdoms to be unified. And it works. You read the story. His playbook works perfectly and the kingdom is divided. 
So eventually the tribes come back together, but by the time they do, a son of David is no longer sitting on the throne so that by the time we get to, to Jesus, the, the house of David is just a few carpenters hanging around. Nothing really impressive. And today in Israel, still no son of David in Jerusalem. I don't know Benjamin Netanyahu's family history, but I'm pretty sure he is not from the line of David. When you go to Jerusalem today, there has not been a temple for almost 2,000 years. David said, I pray for this city because the temple is here. But where's the temple? Let alone a temple city. So what happened to this perfectly unified temple city ruled by a son of David? Like, did God fail to keep his promises? He got one generation of unity and prosperity, and then it all went down the drain. Has God failed to keep his promise to David? And the answer is absolutely not. Remember, David wrote this psalm. This is the most incredible part of this psalm. I'm like halfway through the week and I realized David never entered the temple because it was not even built until after he had died. So as David is, is singing about going up to the house of the Lord, that's something he knows will never happen in his lifetime. He was never invited to go to Solomon's temple. He never ate a meal in the temple courtyards. He died before construction even began. So as David sang Psalm 122, as David sang his own psalm, what was he singing about? Like what was going through that madman's mind? Well, on the one hand, I think David's saying Psalm 122 with the eyes of faith trusting that God would indeed keep his promise and he would build a temple. I think David was looking forward more to more than an earthly temple and more than an earthly city and more than an earthly king. I think David, as the author of this psalm, I think David would have sung this psalm with the eyes of faith, looking forward to an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, whose king is none other than the king of kings and lord of lords. I think David was looking forward to going to that heavenly temple we read about in the book of Hebrews, the temple not made with human hands. And that's why David also famously wrote in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why did David write that? Why did David have that expectation of dwelling in God's temple forever? Because he was looking forward to the heavenly temple where there is no more death. There is no more wickedness where God has dealt away with it all and he is sovereign. Even though Jerusalem is called the city of peace, we know it has been anything but peaceful. And that's where even when when I first heard about this new war, it's like, oh, here here we go again. And I think that, that if we're tempted to root our, our hope in God's promises in an earthly Jerusalem, at this point, I honestly think you are going to be disappointed. But it is not as though God's promises have failed. It is not because David's prayer was unanswered. It is because David's prayer was ultimately answered in the person and the work of Jesus. That's why in John 1, we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally the word tabernacle. 
like, like the tabernacle of the Old Testament and the temple of the Old Testament. All of these were just pictures of the day when God would come down from heaven and take on flesh and walk among us. The almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing power and presence of God in a human being. And that human being was none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And even though Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of God the Father, his presence can still be felt and realized and experienced through his followers. Like through you, church. Ephesians chapter 2, we studied this just a few months ago. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is so much greater than the temple in Jerusalem could have ever been. And, and, and even, even this reality right now of the temple of God, of the house of, of God, being amongst God's people gathered, even pales in comparison to that day when we will be with him and we will see him face to face and he will walk among us and there will be no temple because the people will live and dwell in the presence of God. And let me just encourage you, church, Whether or not my singing is good or the preaching is good or the order of surf is good or or, or no matter what happens at, at church, whether or not it is aesthetically pleasing to you, it does not matter because the gladness that is felt that is being in the house of the Lord is based in the spirit of God who is building us together into God's temple. Like every Sunday as we sing hymns and we read scripture and we pray and we hear the word of God's preach. God's presence is here. That's why in the New Testament, we are called a people for God's own possession, just like Israel was called in the Old Testament. That's why in the Bible, both Israel and the church are called the beloved of God, sons of God, Abraham's seed, an olive tree, God's bride, a vineyard, sheep, God's special people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Not to mention that Christians are called Abraham's seed, children of the Jerusalem above. And most clearly in Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. And this is, of course, where some people start to freak out because they'll say that if the church is the Israel of God, if we as the church are the ones who are going to inherit all the promises given to Abraham, does that once again not mean that God has broken his promises to the Jewish people? And that is a great question. Like Paul actually deals with this question very clearly in Romans chapter nine. Like like because if you read Romans chapter eight, it is promise after promise after promise of God's good and glorious provision. Like like neither height nor death nor angels nor demons, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Glorious promises you'll find in Romans eight. But there was a problem in that the majority of, of God's people had not received any of those promises. So there were people in Paul's day that said, how can we trust any of the promises of Romans 8 if God's chosen people have rejected the Christ? If most of God's chosen covenant people have not received the salvation God promised, then how can we trust in any of his promises? And Paul's answer in Romans 9 is this. 
but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham uh, are, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Let me tell you something. Being born Jewish is an incredible honor because of the lineage you come from, because of the way that God has blessed that people, that he chose them by his grace. But being born of Jewish descent does not guarantee that you're a part of God's chosen people any more than being part of any other ethnicity. That's actually what the Pharisees believed. That's, that's why Jesus preached that man must be born again because your natural birth does not give you a right into the kingdom of heaven. You must have a birth that is a heavenly birth if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven. Salvation is not a birthright given to one ethnicity. It is a gift bestowed by God Almighty to all whom he has mercy. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's why actually in Romans 4, we're told that everyone who shares the faith that Abraham had, you see, Abraham was not saved by his works. He was saved through his faith in the promises of God. And in Romans 4, Paul makes this case that every person, no matter where you come from, if you have the same faith that Abraham had, you are counted as a son or a daughter of Abraham. And that's why we studied in Ephesians 2 that we were told the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been demolished. And that's why in Romans 11, we're told that we as Gentile, we're unnatural branches, but by the grace of God, we have been grafted into God's people. And listen, because this is so important. This is where I usually lose people. And this is where so many people get it wrong. This is deep stuff, but it's important stuff. God does not have two distinct peoples. I do not believe that God has two brides. God has one bride, Israel. And all those who by faith believe in Jesus are grafted into God's chosen covenant people. Like, like some have, have called what I'm describing replacement theology. It is not. I hate that phrase replacement theology because the church in no way replaces Israel. Like does a butterfly replace a caterpillar? Does a frog replace a tadpole? Absolutely not. The church does not replace Israel. The church is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament, of all that Israel was hoping for. Of, of a, this is a group of people who were not just born into a nation, but all those who have the Spirit of God, who have been born again, who have been taught by God. The church does not replace Israel. The church is the true fulfillment of all Israel had been hoping for. And the only hope that we have today for a lasting peace cannot be found in the earthly city of Jerusalem. But lasting peace can only be found in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's why in Hebrews, we are told we have no lasting city here. But we seek the city that is to come. So if I can sum up my argument that I've been making in this sermon Psalm 122 is not just an invitation for the Israelites to go to Solomon's temple, but it is also an invitation for all peoples to enjoy the Lord's presence through the sacrifice of Christ. 
Psalm 122 is not just an invitation for the Israelites to be unified as a geopolitical state, but it is also an invitation for all peoples to be unified around the throne of God. That's what we read in Revelation, that all tongues, all tribes, all peoples, all nations, that's the unity that we see here in Psalm 122, but it is realized at the throne in heaven. Psalm 122 is not just an invitation to hope for peace in the Middle East, but also an invitation to hope in the lasting and final peace that one day will be fully realized in the new Jerusalem. Remember, my prayer this morning is that we'd be able to sing Psalm 122 with all of our hearts as Christians living in 2024 the way the Lord means us to. Because in Psalm 122, we found three invitations to enjoy the Lord's presence, to be unified under David's rule, and to hope and lasting peace. So what does that mean for the nation state of Israel today? Before I get too much into it, I'll just say Like, I don't like diving into politics, but I just feel like this is such an issue that the Bible does address and does speak to, and that there is so much confusion, and there are a lot of very intelligent, much smarter than I. Like, I went to public school in Louisiana. I've got a three-pound brain. Like, I am not a smart person. There are smarter people than me that will give a different take than what I'm about to say. So I just want to lay that out with all humility. Like, especially brothers, sisters at Word Life, like your school and institution would probably give a very different answer than what I'm about to say. So my goal in this moment is not to offend. It's just to offer my clarity as much as I can on this issue and say, this is where I'm at. If you disagree, God bless you, like a lot of people do. But based on what I see from the whole of Scripture and how God describes the church, this is what I'll say. God did choose Israel to be his covenant people. But his covenant with Israel was a conditional covenant. God God promised Israel blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Like this isn't being saved. This isn't salvation or damnation, but earthly blessings and earthly curses. And that's why the new covenant with Christ is so much greater than the old covenant because the new covenant is founded solely on the unconditional promises of Christ. There are Jewish Christians and Palestinian Christians who have received these promises. They, together with all other Christians, they are the meek who will inherit the earth when Christ returns, and that includes the land of Israel and the new heavens and the new earth. And because the majority of Jewish people, like not all of them, obviously, but but as a nation state, they reject Jesus as their Messiah, that they are in rebellion against their God, and they are living in a state of unbelief, they have forfeited the blessings of the covenant. Now, that does not mean the nation of Israel does not have a right to defend itself. Israel should not be discriminated against or treated unjustly, but she should be held to the same moral standard as every other unbelieving nation, because by and large, she exists in a state of unbelief, rejecting her own Messiah, which means that if and when Israel wages war in an unjust or inhumane way, she can and should be held accountable to the same standard as every other country. I'll also just know, Personally, politically, I side on the, on the side of standing with Israel. They are the only democracy in the Middle East, the only friendly government to the United States, the only true modern nation state in the area. Politically, I think there's a good case to support Israel as an ally, but I don't think that case is founded in her status as God's chosen people. Do we still pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Absolutely. Please pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why wouldn't we pray for the peace of that city? But, but as 
we have this developed understanding of who we are in Christ, like the bride of Christ being Israel, Gentiles, the dogs just grabbing scraps of grace at the bottom of the table who are welcomed in. Like if we are a part of God's chosen people, it changes the way that we should read this song. We do pray for the city, but we pray for it differently on this side of the cross. And this morning, I have four pastoral charges. I have specifically four prayers that we should pray in light of Psalm 122. First pastoral charge, pray that the Lord would give you the peace of Jesus. Pray that the Lord would give you the peace of Jesus. Like in this hour, Jesus told us in the gospel of Matthew, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He's talking to like a Roman centurion. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like we are in an age of invitation and grace and no matter where you're, you've come from, if you come to Jesus, then by his blood, by his grace, you can sit and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Come then, put your faith in Jesus. Pray that Jesus would give you the peace that you desperately need. Repent of your sin and put your faith alone in Christ. Second pastoral charge, pray for the unity and peace of the church. Pray for the unity and the peace of the church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, commenting on this passage, he gave one ad, a piece of advice on how we should pray. He said, in a church, one of the main ingredients of success is internal peace. Strive, suspicion, party split, division. These are deadly things. Those who break the peace of the church deserve to suffer. And those who sustain it win a great blessing. The heart for God's people to be unified is in this passage so clearly. And like even I look at the 12 tribes coming as different tribes and uniting together that like even though we got Methodists and Episcopalians and, 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 uh, and Baptists and Pentecostals, like all the denominations as divided as we are because we hold to the same gospel, we can still have, have unity. That though we're different waves crashing down on the beach, we're all a part of the same ocean of grace. Amen? Amen. Seek to be unified and pray for the unity and peace of the church. Third pastoral charge, pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Do not make the mistake of thinking that God is done with the Jewish people. Because right after Paul makes the case that the Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God, he also tells us, get ready because the natural branches are going to come back one day. And in my own, this is a hard passage to understand, in my own understanding of Romans 11... When Jesus returns to split the sky, it will result in a large number of ethnic Jews who come to faith in Jesus and who will receive the promises of the covenant. And in the end, all Israel will be saved. Only through Jesus, only through the Messiah, only through the blood of Christ. But we should still pray that these descendants of Abraham would receive those promises. Fourth pastoral charge. Pray for the new Jerusalem to come. Pray for the new Jerusalem to come. Listen, the lasting peace we're looking forward to in Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles and of the Lamb. And I saw no temple in the city. 
for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. Why will its gates never be shut? Because our prayers for the peace of Jerusalem will finally and fully be realized that in that city there will be no danger, no wars, no enemies. For the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. And on that day, Jesus too will do away with that enemy. This is the Jerusalem we should long for and look for and ultimately be praying for. And on that note, let's pray. Lord, grant us wisdom in this great mystery as Paul described it, this mystery of long ago to involve the Gentiles in your plan of salvation. Lord, we are so grateful for Lord, it's only by your grace that any of us are included in this plan, that any of us have heard the gospel. And so we'll forever praise your son for his sacrifice. If we trust in all of his promises, for we know that even if the promises don't look like what we initially think they should look like, We know that your ways are better than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.